Welcome to Abuelas en Acción. I am Marie Dahlstrom, and my co-host, Dr. Rosemary Salaya Alston, and I are continuing our wonderful conversation with Dr. Ruth Sambrana. So, Ruth, in, in your book, Toxic Ivory Towers, Consequences of Work Stress, on underrepresented faculty documents the professional work experiences of underrepresented minority faculty in the United States in higher education, and that despite the changing demographics of the nation, the percentages of Black and Hispanic faculty have increased only slightly, even still, while the percentages obtaining tenure and earning promotion to full professor have remained relatively stagnant. This is such an important issue as so many of us have had experience of being the only Latino or the one few Latino in a white dominant organization such as academia. What needs to happen for organizations such as higher education to truly succeed in the recruitment, retention, and promotion of Latinos. Right. Well, I think first we have to look at the problem. So the problem is that we have so few people in there, so few individuals in um, academia. Why is it important that we be there? It's important that we be there because the only way to shift the paradigm, to shift the way we are studying, to lay out these problems, to counteract uninformed and ignorant narratives on Latinos is for Latinos who have a lived experience of discrimination and racism and, and facing barriers can write and publish and produce knowledge that shows what it is and how to change it. So, the other big thing, the reason I started this book, because that problem has always been there, is because I started to observe a couple of things. I'm, I mean, I was part of the civil rights movement, but as I started to move more around in different universities and go give lectures, there were no Latinos in the audience, no professors. And I said, what the heck happened? The other really critical observation, because I'm a medical sociologist by training, was that I began to have people talk to me about their illnesses. They had kidney disease, they had breast cancer, they had all kinds of things that were happening to them. And then I began to hear about deaths. And we're talking about young people, 40, 45. Why were these professors dying? There were so few of them. So this premature death, and these high levels of chronic conditions among a relatively young group of people, assistant professors and associate professors, tweaked my interest. And I said, I have to go in there because I am not a higher education expert. I am now, I have become one. I always talk, I took that strong left turn into higher education out of sociology because I needed to know why are our brilliant people dying? Because the ones who made it into the academy were the best of the best, equal to none. 
So why were they dying? Um, I was also passionate about changing how we are studied. And I was passionate about training the next generation. Because if they were dying, how are we going to shift the paradigm? How are we going to produce good scholarship, representative scholarship? So the book found, and I think I'll just talk about two, two important things briefly. Discrimination was high. Discrimination was high. It was like, you don't belong here. You don't fit your work on Latinos. Why are you doing that type of work? Why is that important? Who cares? Um, so there was a discrimination even against our research agenda. There is still high discrimination. I have to tell you the story. I have a cousin. He is tall, brown skin, um, Puerto Rican, and he was at Princeton. And he wanted to be pre-med. I met with him two years ago. And he talked a lot about how the other boys were kept asking him, are you affirmative action? Do you belong here? I just heard a couple of weeks ago that he has shifted. He is not going into pre-medicine. So there's another lost, brilliant young man because of discrimination, racism. As a student, as a faculty, we have the same thing. So that was one. The other thing was the amount of work they were doing. You know, we, we represent everything. And that type of taxation, what we call taxation, black, brown taxation, identity taxation, cultural taxation, was not allowing them to do the scholarly production that is necessary to advance in the academy. So we don't get promoted because we're always helping Latino students doing diversity work. We do all the work and non-URM faculty sit back and do their research. So the book is important and the book has gotten tremendous emotional reaction. I have done over 30 presentations universities throughout this country and it resonates with the lives, the lived realities of our people. And um, it is a very sad state of affairs. What has to change is that we cannot continue to be used by institutions to do their diversity work. We need institutions to begin to understand all of them, all the faculty, the administrators, what is equity and how do we increase more welcoming climates in these institutions so that white folks and international folks have to be able faculty to join as allies in the goal of equity and social justice in the academy. So I think that answers the question, does it, it matter? It does, it does. It still places a, a large lens on, um, you know, what we need to do to um, begin establishing our own narrative as as we've all tried but on your back to some extent Ruth in terms of um, more equity and being at the table especially around curriculum development and having a more welcoming institution um, right. for all of us for all of us what future yeah. opportunities do you see for younger generations mm -hmm. of Latinos who may be considering a career in public health? 
Yes, that's a good question. We are totally underrepresented in public health. And I want to say that we do have currently, and we are establishing an advocacy group of faculty, junior faculty and senior faculty, to really to begin to push on schools of public health to train um, more public health individuals. Now, this question has no simple answer, in part because it digs so deep into our roots. So when we talk about training the next generation, we need to talk about it in terms of the public education we have and, and the wealth deficits that have crippled our opportunities to advance in higher education. So it's become a harmful and vicious circle. The academy itself, and everyone knows this, at least the academics, we academics know this, was not built for us. The academy higher education was built by upper middle class white folks who on their leisure time taught and prepared the, um, to prepare the next generation. So the salaries in academia, at least for professors are relatively low compared to other institutions, particularly public institutions where we tend to reside. Um, so we cannot ever look at this outside the context of what it means to be a professional in the United States and how wealth is transferred and how we oftentimes as underrepresented minority, a unique niche we have, um, including from the poor to the professional, help our families. So part of what we make goes to our families. And instead of the usually for majority culture families and for many of the international elite, their families are, are money is flowing towards them to help them. In our families, money is flowing out of our families, out of our salaries to help our own families. So I was just talking with a president, a prior president of the university. What are some of the ways um, to do this. Now, a lot is research and advocacy because we have been underrepresented for a long time. For Latinos from the 19, since 1988 um, to the present, faculty was about 3.5%, about 4.5, 4.7. And that has been the brain drain from Latin America that has increased those numbers. Now, for us to really tackle issues of the poor in terms of scholarship and advocacy, and training the next generation, there has to be racial and ethnic concordance because there's an understanding and a commitment there. We know, even for medicine, that we tend to really try to develop the scholarship and the type of equity actions that will benefit disadvantaged communities. So here are some solutions, Rose, because I, I think the problem is the problem. I think we're aware of the problem. Um, and what we, and we cannot continue to discuss the same problem over and over and over again, which right. is another characteristic of academia right. and this country. <laughs> so I think we need to, if we do what we'd said before is equalize the monies to the uh, high schools, we can improve the high school and provide opportunity for our students to engage in extracurricular activity. 
and to have tutoring in school and to have math and science programs. We know that it's something like 80 or 90% of our students do not take AP courses because mm -hmm. they're not available. So that has been written by Silvia Ulblado, who's at UCLA, is a Chicana, Mexican-American leading scholar in higher education and education. And that has been a problem forever. We need community colleges to take an active role in recruiting and training and educating our communities for nursing and compute, computer tech jobs, for example, for unionized jobs, plumbing, electricity. They make money, they have benefits. We need the community colleges to provide viable opportunities for our folks. We also need them to train them to provide them the education needed to go to four-year colleges because community colleges also have these bridges for four-year colleges like the University of Maryland, um, where then they can begin their pathway forward. It is very interesting that a significant number of professors and physicians started out at community colleges. So we know just from experience, they are a critical um, pathway to professionalism. So that's important. Another thing that has been recommended, which I love, is that an academic gap year be provided at the beginning as a bridge between high school and college. Because we, in the current educational system, we are not well prepared for college in terms of writing skills, math skills, all those types of important skills that private schools provide and that public schools in wealthy areas provide. So the gap year was recommended by a, pres by a president, um, President Kington, ex-president Kington, um, as important. We have to acknowledge that we are not well prepared, the majority of us, for college. So we need that academic gap year. And there was a model that was done in New York, which I was part of, I worked in, which called open admissions, which every kid, student, and it was mainly Black and Puerto Rican. It was in Harlem. And it was 1971. Um, where every kid who thought they wanted college aid came in. We provided support services, both educational, social, emotional, and financial. And to give them a chance. I don't know what the outcome is, but I am sure it was good. So that's really important. I think that universities need to provide financial scholarships based on actual need and assist with preparing those applications. A study I read a few years ago, 60 to 70% of students who get financial aid don't really need it. So these are really, really important common sense things to do. I think that we need to look, we need to go out there and look in our communities to recruit the students. We need to go to San Antonio, wherever the Mexican-Americans are. We need to go to Oregon, you know, where the Mexicans are. We need to go to DC where the Salvadorians and Guatemalans are, the poor, the disadvantaged. We don't need to help my kids probably, or either of your kids, but we do need to help the disadvantaged. And um, we need to know what financial aid means and we need to know who gets it. So we need to include every, let me conclude with this sentence. We need to include everyone 
to expand and protect our democracy that we have all contributed to and that we wish to continue. So thank you. Oh my gosh, Ruth, I feel, I'm, I'm sure you as well, Marie, that I've just been able to be a, a, a little bit of a student in your one of your classrooms <laughs> and the enormous amount of not only laying out the foundation of where we are, but the solution-based kinds of things that you have provided our listeners today. I love that statement, attend to the instability of poor people mm-hmm. and continuing to look at a unite more a unified agenda in terms of the areas that you have spoken about today. Um, you have provided our listeners an opportunity and ourselves as well, a reflection time to really look back on, you know, really what is it do we that we want to um, enrich here and empower here in a different kind of way and words do and are important but behind those words need to be action and not just talking about the same oh same oh as you (laughs) so so wonderfully recommended to all of us I the rich um, diamond that we just got today has been a treat Uh, a really a treat Ruth Marie what what would you like to add Well, this has been a very powerful interview, Ruth, and such a gift to to Rosemary and I, and I hope to our listeners. Thank you for that. I'd like to say that hearing you talk about your recent book, Toxic Ivory Towers, I really encourage people to buy that book and to read it. I had a profound sense of uh, sadness um, look, as you were talking, and in particular, hearing you talk about the impact on faculty of color's health, um, because that hits home. I know personally for both Rosemary and I, we've had our experiences in predominantly white organizations and institutions, and the impact it took on our health. And I honestly don't know what would have happened um, to me, um, and I can say for so many other people as well, if familias did not exist, because familias was our coming home. So Mm. many times uh, our colleagues have come to familias from, you know, public organizations, academia, and have said, it is so beautiful to be here where I'm not the only one where I don't have to um, convince people because we are familia here. We may be from diverse backgrounds as Latinos, but we uh, respect one another and we know what needs to be done. So thank you for that. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for giving voice and naming the um, institutional racism um, that we as um, uh, professionals of color in whatever field have, have had to experience. Muchisimas gracias, Ruth, for joining us today. Thank you all for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast 
on Buzzsprout, Apple, and Spotify, and we appreciate your reviews. We look forward to having you with us next time on Abuelas en Acción. Gracias.